Science of Canada's beautiful National Arts Centre. Word is starting to get out about what we're doing here. We are starting to get into the habit of having conversations about politics. And our timing tonight couldn't be better because a poll yesterday by the Angus Reid organization said that uh, the Conservative Party of Canada was up 10 points on the governing Liberals. And a poll this morning by Nanos said that the Conservatives are up one point over the governing Liberals, which means that Andrew Shear's Conservatives have lost nine points in a single day. <laughs> and the Conservative leader tonight leads a party in crisis and free fall. <laughs> what this does tell us is that anything can happen. And in the next year and a half is going to be pretty interesting. And it also tells us that it's time for Canadians to get to know a little better uh, my guest this evening, Andrew Shear. Come on up, Andrew, let's make some noise. I thought we would begin uh, by situating you a little bit in time and space. Uh, you were born here in Ottawa. I was. May of 1979. Mm -hmm. If my math is correct, two days after Joe Clark won that year's federal election. That sounds right, yes. Um, and I, do you have any memories of those days? They were, those were heady days. <laughs> you know, all the excitement in the air. <laughs> and I met you uh, not very many years later, uh, probably about six years ago, when you were the Speaker of the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. And Maclean's has an annual event called the Parliamentarian of the Year Awards. And uh, as we begin to celebrate the best that Parliament has to offer. There's always a, a lunch in the Speaker's chambers. And you, I would always find myself as if by magic, seated to the right of the Speaker at those lunches. And you would grill me for an hour between courses about what was going on in politics. <laughs> what do you think the Prime Minister is doing? Do you think it's going to work? What do you think of this new opposition leader? Because in those days, there was a new opposition That's leader right. every couple of years. And... <laughs> And I thought, this guy is really very political. And I've wondered ever since then, why on earth did you want to be speaker? <laughs> well, I, uh, I remember that conversation, actually, and I found it uh, fascinating. I enjoyed being speaker a tremendous amount. And uh, when I was first elected in 2004, I quickly saw that uh, every party needed to have some people uh, on their team that knew what the rules were, that you could really help your team if you knew how to slow things down that you were opposed to and speed things up that you wanted to see passed quicker. And so I started to learn about the rules and try to be that person on, on the Conservative team. And through that, I quickly developed an appreciation for the role of the Speaker in that and got to know Peter Milliken uh, very well, uh, was appointed as one of the Assistant Deputy Speakers and then went on to be Deputy Speaker and ran in, in 2011. I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. I, I think the speaker is a critically important part for uh, a role for a parliamentary institution. But it was it was great to have a chance to chat with someone like you to get the insight onto what was going on politically because the speaker lives in a world full of procedure with clerks talking about uh, questions of privilege and standing orders and, and the speaker doesn't go to caucus anymore. So to have the ability to kind of you know, get my fill a little bit about what was going on in the current uh, atmosphere was a great opportunity, and, and that, that's probably what you're sensing a little bit there, was that, uh, you know, that, that all, always underlining interest in what was going on in the public policy side of things. There must have been so many days when it was a little bit like being the designated driver on pub night. <laughs> <laughs> They're all having a lot of fun. And yeah, I sometimes have to in the late evenings, probably literally, but... Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm given to understand there's some pretty good bottles in the speaker's chamber. There what? <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm or deny. Did you, 
did you did did you ever have the feeling like you had put your political career on just an indefinite hold and it was going to be hard to find the on-ramp back into politics back into politics yeah you know i honestly never really thought of it that way when when the opportunity to run for speaker in 2011 came up i i'd really I felt I'd really grown into the role as deputy speaker. As I mentioned, I worked with Peter Milliken for a number of years and got to know what was involved in being speaker. And I just thought it'd be a wonderful thing. I I always thought that you know it was it was uh, appropriate to for the house to have several options as to who they wanted to be speaker at the time. So I let my name stand, put my name forward, and uh, and the house at the time voted for me. So I just looked at it as, as that kind of snapshot in time, the the, the role for me at that time. Um, it is rare, and I kind of, I, to, to your point, I knew a little bit that uh, being the youngest speaker in Canadian history would, would break a few uh, conventions uh, in that usually the speakership was the last thing someone did uh, in the House of Commons, and uh, I, I wasn't sure that I wanted that to happen uh, to me. So in 2015, uh, when, when we lost the election, um, Ron Ambrose, our interim leader, uh, you know, once it was clear I, I wouldn't run for speaker again, Liberals would have a speaker, uh, she said, well, look, why don't you be the opposition House leader? There's a lot of overlap, there's a lot of parallel, there's a procedural side of things for the House leader role, and, uh, and I just jumped at the chance. I thought, okay, great, I kind of closed that chapter on what I had done on the Hill and, and now start a new one. Uh, you raised a lot of eyebrows when you were the House Leader because House Leader is an intensely partisan gig and you had just spent several years not being partisan. Did you feel shy about it? Did you feel uh, uh, unleashed and free? Uh, what was that transition like? Yeah, four years of pent-up partisanship. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, probably my first question, question period probably sounded strange to my own ears because for, for four, well, more than four years, because as deputy speaker, I had to be nonpartisan as well. So for you know, six plus years, uh, I would never have said anything critical about another party or complimentary about my own party. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm asking that first question. I thought, oh, that sounded uh, kind of, but I think it was very easy for me to compartmentalize the partisanship from the role of, of speaker because I had uh, really developed that appreciation of, of the importance of the role. And what was helpful for me was to concentrate on the, uh, the essential aspect of having a, a fair play in the House and, and, and uh, an arbitrator of those rules that just looks calmly and coldly at the, at, at the rules and how they're being applied. And in terms of being nonpartisan with, with other members of Parliament, I very quickly learned, and this is something I think the speakership was very good for me in terms of my own kind of uh, perspective on things. Um, I was pretty partisan in 2004 when I first got elected. And seeing the speaker share interacting with members of Parliament outside of the chamber, more even on a social level, helped me to appreciate the fact that we're all in it for the same reason, you know. We, whether the we're NDP or Liberal or Conservative, we're all getting on that plane or driving in that car to Ottawa to fight for what we believe is right. We believe we're, the things we're fighting for will make Canada a better place. Many of us are leaving family, young kids, loved ones back home to do it, and so to appreciate the sacrifice that each individual member of Parliament was doing to to fight for the things they believe in helped me keep the partisanship at bay while I was Speaker. Uh, stepping back in the role as Opposition House Leader, obviously it's, you know, kind of put the hat back on. Now it's time to fight for the things I believe in and th th fight for the things that my constituents sent me to fight for. Okay. You mentioned sacrifice. Earlier we were chatting and uh, you said that uh, in the normal run of the day's events on Parliament Hill, you found time to sneak home for 20 minutes for a birthday celebration. Your son Thomas turned 13. That's right. Teenager in the house. He now. is the oldest of five. Three of them are girls. Yes. What kind of challenge is that for a career politician? 
Uh, I think having children is a, a challenge, a wonderful challenge for anybody in, uh, in life. It does make it hard. Uh, when I was first elected, we didn't have kids, the kids came later. The, the joke in Regina for a period of time was every time there's an election, the Shears are going to have another one because uh, elected five times, five kids, and the timing kind of <laughs> uh, works out. Uh, you, should, you should have been out campaigning, theoretically. That's right. <laughs> My son Thomas, I think, uh, was maybe two, uh, around two, after the 2008 election, uh, someone in his class told him that uh, he was really hoping that he might have a brother or a sister. And Thomas said, oh, I, I know the answer. Just tell your dad to run an election, and then he'll have a, <laughs> he'll have a brother or sister. Um, we, we made a tough decision to move to Ottawa after the, the leadership race. Uh, there really wasn't, I felt, a, a way to balance off both having uh, uh, the family in Regina and being based here and then having to travel during break weeks. It's been a challenge. It's, it's all about finding that balance, finding time to sneak home for that, that supper, uh, and, and also making sure that I'm available to do all the, the travel and the extra work that does come along with the job. I think, as most parents will tell you, inside or outside of public life, it's always a work in progress. You're always kind of fine-tuning schedules and trying to adapt to things as, as your kids hit different milestones and some of the challenges that come along with that. But overall, it's been a very positive experience. I've tried to incorporate some of what I get to do with family life, so where I'm able to, you know, did an Eastern tour, took the kids along uh, with me, and I got to take them out on a lobster boat uh, off the coast of PI, which for some kids from the prairies was a special treat. So um, trying to incorporate both sides of that has been key to success for us. Okay. Um, you moved back to Ottawa after having been born here. You moved out to Saskatchewan to be with your girlfriend, Jill, mm -hmm. uh, straight out of university. Uh, what, was, what, was, what did Saskatchewan seem like, feel like in those days when you were still very young? Mm -hmm. Like a, a vast barren desert of nothing or? <laughs> well, it was governed by the NDP at the time, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, no, it was, uh, it, it was wonderful. I, I quickly fell in love with the province. Uh, when, I, when, you know, but I will say, when I moved to Saskatchewan, uh, at the time, it was very easy to find a U-Haul to go to Regina because uh, many young people were leaving the province back in 2003. And, and that was a big topic of the debate in uh, the 2003 election and again in 2007, the fact that many young people had to leave the province. Uh, and after the SAS party won in 2007, that trend started to reverse. We had a lot more investment and growth and now, you know, people are moving back. Uh, I've got met tons of people in my riding who moved away to get jobs in uh, Alberta, British Columbia, and then came back and, and are great to be back in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan is a wonderful province full of wonderful people. Uh, it is a, a very tight-knit community, um, and I literally fell in love with the people soon after moving there. It, it, the type of things where you know, your neighbors will come and stop by. When we moved into our street, you know, people from around the block came over to introduce themselves. And you know, even to this day, when we're here, uh, we'll get phone calls from neighbors saying, "Hey, you know, you're, you're, you know, when you, when you left to go to the airport, you left the garage door open. Or, you know, <laughs> do you want us to roll your garbage in? Or you, know, you forgot it was recycling day?" And it's just really uh, that sense of, uh, of community. So uh, I'm I'm very happy to be in Saskatchewan. Okay. Um, I've noticed something, or I believe I've noticed something in your communications uh, material over the last really few weeks which is when you go somewhere, when you flew to England recently, when you announce a policy, there's a little phrase, uh, uh, when I'm Prime Minister. Uh, this is the sort of thing that we're going to be doing when I'm Prime Minister. And it recalls me, it reminds me of uh, um, conscious decisions that previous uh, opposition leaders have made. Uh, sometimes they were prophetic, sometimes they were pathetic. Uh, but <laughs> but you, part of your job is to get Canadians who have a Prime Minister now used to the idea that there could be a different one. Uh, 
Uh, is that something that you're consciously doing and that you, uh, that part of the discourse that you need to have with Canadians a year and a half before the next election? Well, I think it's, it's a great point. I think there's a, a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I would by no means presume to tell Canadians what's going to happen. The choice is ultimately with them. I am focused on earning their trust and putting forward a series of policies that resonate with them. And I hope that they see in me and my team of shadow ministers and my caucus uh, a government in waiting that, that could step in the day after the election and govern this wonderful country. So when I use language like that, when I, I want to project the idea that I am confident, I believe very firmly that not only am I capable of doing it, but my team is capable of doing it, and that our policies will work uh, for Canadians. So it's couched in that idea of, you know, I, I would like Canadians to, to think of me as being capable of, of doing it, uh, while at the same time respecting the fact that uh, it's not in my hands, it's in theirs, and I have to work hard to earn that trust. You have a substantial challenge ahead of you. I am a bit of a student of, uh, of uh, political trivia. Uh, you're trying to unseat a first-term majority government. A new prime minister who was elected for the first time with a majority in the last election, you want him out in the next election. It's only happened twice since Confederation. R.B. Bennett in 1930 was elected with a majority, a big solid government, and then was out five years later. And in 1873, uh, my fellow Sarnian, uh, Alexander Mackenzie, won a majority government and then was out five years later. Uh, those are the only two times since Confederation that we've had a one-and-done majority. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, both of those gentlemen were beat by the prime minister that they had defeated uh, a few years earlier. So R.B. Bennett beat Mackenzie King and then was beat by Mackenzie King the next time. And Sandy Mackenzie beat uh, Sir John A. Macdonald and then five years later Sir John A. didn't look so bad and he came back. Do you think that this prime minister who came in with a large majority is vulnerable and, 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 and can you afford to have a two election strategy? Can you afford to take a couple runs uh, or will the party not accept that from you? <laughs> well, the, the second part of your question, I think, is a difficult one for uh, to answer, but I'll answer the first part first. Do I think it's possible? Yes, I do. Uh, I do come from the insurance world, so when you point out the fact that it hasn't happened in a while, my insurance brain tells me that we're due for one. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the risk management strategy would say, okay, well, <laughs> it's time for the third one. Um, but I really do. I think, you know, voters, I don't believe, uh, are bound by some of those... Uh, uh, traditions or conventions or, or however that may have happened over the years. I don't think voters think about that, say, well, you know, we usually give people two shots, so we'll give them a second one. I think the electorate in Canada and all around the world is much more dynamic, and uh, anything that we might have thought about trends that usually happen, uh, I don't believe you can count on them anymore. Uh, I'd ask you, uh, your student of history, how many times the third place party has gone from third to first. That's, that, that was that's the first. Pretty, pretty rare as well. So I think we're into an age of uh, really anything can happen. It's going to be very competitive. Uh, I believe that there are more and more Canadians who I believe voted uh, liberal in the last election for a variety of reasons that are already disaffected and looking back to us as say, okay, well, you know, maybe I voted conservative in 2011, didn't really like how that worked out, um, but, but I'm open to coming back in 2019. My job now is to, to capture them. In terms of the timeline strategy, I was elected in 2004. We had 0408 were minority governments, and then 2011 with the majority. I think anything can happen in, 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 in any election, and I think our team and myself are prepared for whatever Canadians elect in the next election. And uh, I'm going to work very hard. I, 
the analogy I, I, I try to use is, you know, I wouldn't want to, if I were a football coach, I wouldn't want anybody on the field that didn't believe we could win in, in 2019, didn't believe we could win the next big game, but nor would I want anybody, anybody on my team that thought uh, that we were definitely going to win the big game, and, and I want people on my team who believe it's possible, know it's possible, uh, but don't take it for granted and work incredibly hard to, to make sure we are successful. Okay. If the winner of the next election were not clear, if uh, we were heading into some kind of minority situation, could you work with Jagmeet Singh in, a, in some kind of minority government arra arrangement? You know, I think it's better to look at it as like, like, could you find support for certain aspects of the platform? And we saw this, uh, as, as you know, you, uh, you study this very closely. In the previous minority parliaments, sometimes we had uh, support from the NDP, sometimes we had support from the Liberals on, on issue by issue. When it was cleaning up some of the corruption that had happened from the previous Liberal government, the NDP was there to support us. When it was on some of the more foreign affairs types of things or some of the economic things, sometimes we had uh, support from the Liberals. I don't want to prejudge what Canadians might elect. I, I do. I will say that after the next election, we will uh, work in good faith to try to uh, make that parliament work, however that might look. Uh, but uh, but I wouldn't want to get too too specific because we just don't know. We, anything could happen, and it could look like almost anything. Okay. Uh, we're still less than a year away from your election as leader of the Conservative Party. It took. It was lightning fast, thanks to the peculiar dynamics of modern uh, uh, leadership races. But it took 13 ballots. On 12 of those ballots, Maxime Bernier was in first place, and then you were in second place. And he has been very outspoken since then. Uh, he's got a book coming out uh, in which he will suggest some of the ways that he would fix Canada. Is that, uh, is that sort of you know, really substantial presence in the party, in the caucus, a force multiplier for you, or is it a management challenge? I, think, I believe the relationship uh, is great. I think caucus is... Uh, I'm at an incredibly fortunate period of time for a conservative leader. I don't know that there are too many instances in Canadian history where a conservative party has lost an election and stayed united. Uh, it's, uh, it's not always a given. Uh, when you talk to members of, of our caucus and members of our party, we are incredibly united. We are, we are a year and a bit out from the next election. We are all focused on the same goal. Uh, Maxime ran a great leadership campaign. He attracted a lot of people to the party, uh, and he had some innovative policy. We all did. Every single one of us brought new people into the into the party, every person who put their name for it. Uh, so we're, the party grew substantially, up over 250,000 members, uh, uh, credible growth of our membership. So of course, uh, that, uh, that that's a positive thing. And I think that when you have someone who uh, has done that, who, who can speak to a certain segment of the conservative uh, movement uh, with eloquence and, and, and who has uh, certainly captivated their imagination on some of the policies, but it's, it's great to have that momentum go forward. And I think, I think Maxime will tell you, um, he's told me, and that he's as focused on, uh, on that goal as I am. And I'm, I'm excited to work with him as we go forward. And we're, we're already working on some of the policies that both he and I agreed on. Uh, he's got a private member's bill that I fully support to bring in greater transparency uh, for uh, government grants and loans to private corporations. So uh, corporate subsidies that are in the form of loans. Right now, taxpayers don't know if those loans ever get paid back. That was a big piece for both he and I about the, the whole piece about how government gets involved in the economy and whether or not taxpayers should have that right to know that. So I'm very optimistic about uh, going forward in that aspect. This private memories bill is occasioned by uh, a lot of the commentary around uh, repeated loans to Bombardier without any, and other corporations, but without any sense of whether 
we ever get those loans paid back. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's the whole piece of, uh, of grants and contributions that are under the category of repayable loans. And right now, there's no real mechanism to ensure that the public is kept up to date as to whether or not those loans are being paid back. And we believe that part of the accountability, when you look at some of the relationship between uh, the Liberal Party and private companies, that uh, the very minimum, Canadians and the media and opposition parties should have a right to know what the nature of some of these loans are and whether or not they are actually being paid back. I want to talk about a, a few specific government files, but one more kind of general question. We got so many questions from uh, readers uh, uh, on Twitter and by email over the, the, the several days leading up to this. And one reader said, uh, please say to Mr. Shear, I'm worried that you're another Stephen Harper. Can you convince me that you're not? <laughs> Well, look, I hate, I, hate to, <laughs> I hate to make comparisons between myself and previous leaders of, of, of any period of time for the Conservative Party. I've got my own style. I've got my own approach. I've got my own way of, uh, of handling things. And I'll have my own set of policy decisions. I really do view May 27th of last year as uh, a new chapter. And uh, Stephen Harper uh, kept our party united. He, he it was, and you remember, that was no easy task. He saw our, our country through the greatest uh, economic downturn since the Second World War, uh, cut taxes, balanced the budget, signed new trade deals, uh, provided tremendous uh, uh, you know, good government to Canadians. Now that chapter's been closed. Canadians chose something else in 2015. We have the Liberal chapter being written right now, and my job is to make sure that I get to write the next one. Okay. Your first big trip overseas as the leader, apart from maybe vacations, I'm not sure, <laughs> was a couple weeks ago you went off to London to prepare... Uh, an eventual trade deal between a post-Brexit Britain and Canada. Why did you want to do that? Well, uh, first of all, it was my second trip. Uh, my first was to Washington. Uh, uh, okay. We went down there to really show a united front uh, as Canada <coughs> deals with uh, the possibilities, uh, some of the negative possibilities around the NAFTA talks. Um, had great meetings there to show that both main parties in Canada are committed to free trade. And the trip to London was, was similar, that I wanted to send the signal that a Conservative government in 2018 would not just be open to signing a trade deal with the UK, but would prioritize it. Uh, as you know, uh, for the past 40 some odd years, the, United, the government of the United Kingdom was unable to sign bilateral trade deals. Everything's had to go through the EU, and they're going to be looking very quickly to sign deals to, to, to make up for, for, uh, for, for, for that lack of, of trade access as they go through uh, the process. And I wanted to send that signal because the timeline works out relatively well. They have a, a certain transition period that they're currently negotiating, and, and the timeline for when they are able to uh, sign those deals and our next election will be relatively uh, close together. And I want to say, hey, look, in 2019, after uh, Conservative governments like when I'm Prime Minister, um, we'll be here to, to quick, very quickly implement that. So uh, I thought it was an important signal to send uh, early um, so that uh, they just have that clarity and, and that confidence knowing that you know, our government will prioritize that. You were publicly an advocate of Britain's exit from the European Union. How come? Sovereignty and the ability for uh, a country to determine its, uh, its, its laws and its, its rules. Uh, you can imagine if part of NAFTA was to have kind of a supranational government maybe anchored in New York and Mexican and American uh, delegates could pass laws overruling Canadian laws or could establish a justice system that would strike Canadian laws down or Canadian court decisions down. You can imagine, I don't think Canadians would have signed on to that in 1988 when we were having our NAFTA election. Uh, so I made the, the point that, um, that 
that you know, if, if I were in the UK, I would have gone that way. I also thought, you know, part of being in the EU, it, it, it became very bureaucratic. It wasn't just about free and open trade and, and movement of peoples. It had gotten this level of another level of government with the ability to pass laws and rule the people of the United Kingdom without their ability to, 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 to have a say because of the members of the European Parliament from other countries. And also their ability to sign trade deals with other countries that they have so much in common with. You know, we could not sign a free trade deal with the UK until every single other country in that uh, union agreed. So, you know, we had to make sure that the Italians, the French, the Romanians, the Czech, they were all okay with us trading with a country with the same head of state, you know, with the same legal system, with the, with the same parliamentary system. So that, that to me was, uh, was a, a good reason for, for the UK to, uh, to leave. What would be in a Canada-UK trade deal that isn't in CETA? Well, that's a good question, and that's one of the reasons why I want to go over there and, and, and talk about that to see, you know, would it be an automatic uh, transition? Uh, they're not able to uh, officially uh, pull out the papers and start to negotiate that type of thing. But you can imagine when you're negotiating with a block of 20-some-odd countries that it's going to be different. You know, the, the, the priorities of the UK will likely be different than the priorities of Romania or of Germany. So, uh, I, you know, whether it's... Uh, some of the European uh, countries may have been more focused on procurement than the than uh, UK. Maybe defense issues would be more of a thing. IP. Some of these uh, some of these things are fast uh, moving, and, and the change in technology has shifted the focus. So, those are some of the broad discussions that I, that I had with people over there. Okay, I admit to remaining a skeptic uh, right now, and for as long as it wants to stay in a common market with a half billion neighbors, Britain has to. Uh, keep adapting all the policies of the European Union. As soon as it decides to reject some of those policies, it comes crashing out of that common market and it hopes that it can pick up another point or two of trade with Canada across the ocean. Uh, are you more optimistic than I am? I, you well, almost have to be. Well, you know, if, 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 our, if our British member uh, probably I would be, uh, you know, more up to speed on this type of thing, and I don't want to per, per, pertain, uh, per, pretend to know uh, or to, to tell the people of the UK what they should be doing, but I, I, would, I would point out that it's not just going to be Canada. It's going to be, uh, well, depending on the US administration, there's potential there. Uh, there's potential for the TPP. There's been talk about the UK joining that as well. There's all kinds of opportunities in Latin America. And as well, this, this notion that somehow they would lose access to the European market, they are an incredibly important trading partner to the EU. And the idea that suddenly the EU would allow their biggest um, customer on many different uh, sectors of the economy to suddenly stop trading with them, that's preposterous. And nobody, I think, believes that that's a, a serious possibility that they would suddenly revert to com you know, completely closed access. Uh, I do point out, too, that there are tremendous costs in being part of the EU. There's billions of dollars to their economy have to get paid into some of these uh, complicated schemes in the EU and all the regulation that costs. I mean, I don't know if you remember some of the stories that, that we would see about, you know, bananas could only be sold in grocery stores if they had an appropriate curve to the banana. And uh, I remember reading one article that uh, buns could not be sold by the dozen because that was confusing to consumers. It had to say how many grams of bread were in the bag, you know, like, things like that. That's, that adds a cost to an economy as well. And coming out of that kind of mess will allow for, uh, potentially, a more liberalized trade within the UK and with other trading partners. Okay. I want to move on uh, to a subject of much greater domestic concern, which is climate change. This is the year. At the end of this year, in theory, uh, Catherine McKenna and the provinces will have come, to, come together on some kind of uh, uh, agreement or imposition in lieu of an agreement on carbon pricing. You're against that. How come? And what's your plan? 
So uh, first, if you don't mind, uh, I will take issue with the term carbon pricing. <laughs> um, uh, it's a, it's I a got a hunch what your term is. <laughs> well, well <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about that. Um, when the market sets a cost of something based on supply and demand and the freedom to buy that item, that's a price. There's a price on apples. I don't have to buy it, and depending on what the crop year is like in certain areas, that price goes up and down. That's a price. When the government sets it, enforces its collection and takes it into its coffers, that's a tax. And all the liberal spin machine in the world doesn't change that. Um, Canadians didn't vote for a carbon tax. Justin Trudeau campaign promised that he wouldn't bring in a carbon tax. Uh, so Canadians, I, don't, I believe, uh, it's safe for me to say, the Canadians did not give this government a mandate for a carbon tax. I've not, I haven't seen any evidence that it will actually reduce emissions. Our largest trading partners around the world are abandoning or refusing to go down the road of a carbon tax. The United States is not imposing a carbon tax on its uh, economy, on its citizens, on its people. Australia repealed their carbon tax. The Socialist Party in France abandoned their plans for a carbon tax. So uh, we are not going to impose a carbon tax on the Canadian people. Uh, I've made the commitment that our first piece of legislation in 2019, when I'm Prime Minister, uh, will be an act to repeal the Carbon Tax Act. <laughs> and um, then we're going to, but in advance of that, I, I do acknowledge the second part of your question, the, the what's your plan? And I am cognizant of the fact that we have to have something credible to say on the environment. And uh, you'll apologize if I'm not going to announce that today. But we're going to, we're our, our shadow cabinet, our shadow ministers are working on uh, on our alternative. We're looking at some other models around the world and here in Canada that have been effective, concentrating more on the incentive incentivizing people rather than punishing people. Uh, that's going to be the tack we're going to take, and I'm confident that it'll be fully costed. Uh, that and it'll have a, a real impact, a meaningful impact, and won't uh, just become another revenue stream for for the government. Okay. I don't want you to give away trade secrets, but where are you in the platform development process, the election? Is, are, are you just chugging away and in, 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 in doing question period again and again and again, and then one day you'll get on a bus, or are you preparing <laughs> for that now? We are preparing for it now. Uh, one of the things I can tell you taking over this position is l just developing an appreciation for how many moving pieces there are for a leader of a party. And on this level, I can say I have a tremendous amount of kind of uh, professional respect for Jagmeet Singh and, and Justin Trudeau because uh, we, we all have to do it uh, for, for our own parties. But yeah, there's a parliamentary cycle. I have to uh, be ready every day in question period. My shadow ministers have to know their files to ask questions, to propose amendments, to appear at committee and, and know all of that. Uh, then there's the entire party infrastructure side, making sure that our EDAs have uh, everything they need, they have resources, they have funds, they have material, uh, candidate recruitment, and policy development is a big part of that. So we are, we have already started. We've already struck a, a caucus committee to start working on the policies that will work with our shadow ministers and individual members of parliament. And that's, that's going on right now. And I, I'm not going to wait just till the, the buses go. There will be some key signature policies that we'll uh, announce earlier so that we can Make sure that Canadians have the uh, have the opportunity to kind of really, uh, uh, you know, uh, understand and, and 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 we have the time to promote it. We've already started. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I talked about prioritizing free trade with the UK. Uh, my own private members bill, which would make maternity and parental leave tax free for new parents. Maxime Bernier's bill, we've we've highlighted, will be a platform uh, commitment. And Pierre Polliver's bill, which looks to make sure the federal government is working with the provinces to ensure that people with disabilities are able to enter the workforce without having all their benefits clawed back. Because that's something that really does sometimes prevent people from working uh, who are able to work and want to work who have disabilities because they get 
their benefits clawed back at such a rate that they end up, it, it doesn't pay to work. So those are some of the compassionate uh, policies that conservatives will be putting that we've already put, put out, but on some of the key ones like environment, uh, like major uh, taxation policies, we're going to take the time to make sure we get it right and that uh, we'll be uh, announcing it as we get closer to the next election. Okay. I'm sure that you'll have a lot to say about uh, pipelines and energy exports. The Liberals have had a hard time getting uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, approved by the BC government, approved by elements of civil society. And whenever you ask about that, they say, yeah, well, nah, 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 you didn't have any luck either when you were in government. How can Canada uh, reconcile its, uh, its vocation as an energy exporting country with its obligations to uh, keep um, uh, carbon emissions under control. And how would you do better, not only than the Trudeau government, but than the Harper government on that front? Well, I, I do point out that the previous Conservative government had success on this file. We had four major pipelines built, uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers of new or uh, replaced lines, increasing our capacity to get projects to market. We had approved some of the pr projects that the Liberals then canceled. And let's never forget, on Northern Gateway, that was a political decision. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't the courts, that wasn't uh, uh, protesters uh, along the, the route. That was a political decision. A project that had gone through the arm's length, independent process, granted the green light, that would have opened up deep water access to Asian markets. Would have got us off our reliance on one customer. We take a massive discount on our energy right now because we basically sell to one customer. We take a haircut. Canadians are getting a bad deal because of that all of us lose when we don't get what we could be getting on the world market because we're just selling uh, to, to one spot. So uh, we've, we've seen under this Liberal government a combination of things. One, a political decision on Northern Gateway just to ignore the advice of an independent uh, in, uh, third party, uh, regulatory body. The second one was Energy East. Energy East had an unprecedented barrier hurdle to get over. And that was for the first time in Canadian history and, and when these approvals were going through, the proponents of that project would have to count for upstream and downstream emissions. Unprecedented. We were imposing that on Canadian workers, on a Canadian company moving Canadian energy to Canadian markets. That requirement is not being put on foreign oil coming in by the tanker load from countries like Saudi Arabia, Algeria, and even the United States. So it's completely backwards. That was a decision by the Liberal government to put those hurdles on there. Now we see with Kinder Morgan uh, the, the inability to, to, to get it done and push it through. I believe part of the problem is the fact that uh, uh, Justin Trudeau is really emboldened uh, People are opposed to it. You know, he, he said, you know, th th these things will only get built if we have social license, if communities get grant permission. Well, that's emboldened a lot of people to protest against them and, and block that and break the law in many situations to do that. We've got a carbon tax in British Columbia. The people of Alberta have a carbon tax thanks to the NDP there. There's no social license that comes with it. So you get the worst of both worlds, carbon taxation and the inability to get through. Uh, we'll, we'll do much better. We'll have more to say than that as we develop our policies, but it will be making sure that the federal government stands up for things that are in the national interest and sees these things through. Jason Kenney, the UCP leader in Alberta, wants the federal government to, to use the declaratory power of the Constitution, which is some pretty old-school constitutional law, to announce to the world, essentially, and to the courts, that this is a federal project and that the provinces don't have uh, any business uh, trying to slow it down. Is that an appropriate role for the federal government to use that declaratory power? I, I think he's highlighting a, a, an important aspect of what the framers of the Constitution were thinking of, and that was to ensure that things that were in the are in 
the vital national interests are not blocked because of regional issues or because of a particular political party in power at the provincial level. These types of projects benefit all Canadians. There will be manufacturing jobs in Ontario. The, the revenues that are generated from it will help pay for health care in Atlantic Canada. Uh, everybody wins in Canada when these projects are approved and go through. So, yeah, the framers of the Constitution were thinking in terms of things like this, whether it was railways back in 1867 or pipelines today, that when they're in, in the national interest, they should not be able to be blocked by individual provincial governments. I haven't seen Justin Trudeau propose any idea other than just giving a stern lecture to the, 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 the Premier of BC. I'm not convinced he actually wants it built. I think he's happy to let the Premier of British Columbia uh, you know, do the dirty work for him and, and delay it and delay it delay it to the point where the proponents just say, okay, well, we can't get this one built either. Because that's what he did with Energy East. He didn't actually kill Energy East. He just made it impossible for it to go forward. Okay. Yesterday in the House of Commons, Conservative MPs voted against uh, the uh, Canada Summer Jobs Program and its requirement that... Uh, companies, agencies, groups that wanted Canada Summer Jobs Grant money sign an attestation asserting that they were not going to do anything that would go against uh, choice on reproductive rights on abortion. Why is that still something that has the House of Commons seized uh, of its significance even this week? Yeah. And why did your MPs vote that way? Well, if I can clarify it a little yeah. bit, um, we voted for the freedom of conscience and freedom of opinion that all Canadians have under the Charter. We voted in favour of our Charter rights. Uh, what the Liberals have done here is not gone after advocacy or groups that use their summer jobs funding to advocate for a particular point of view on some of these social issues. That's not what they did. They forced every single applicant to attest to holding the same values as Justin Trudeau has on some of these issues. So, uh, you know, it could be an individual, it could be someone not even affiliated with a faith group who just, you know, looking for an admin assistant at their store. It could be an RM, a rural, rural municipality or a small town who's looking for a lifeguard at the local pool. Um, it could be groups that help refugees uh, run camps for kids. Have nothing to do with advocacy. Have nothing to do with with trying to affect change on on these issues. They now have to sign an attestation. Granting what the Liberals have done here is allowed the government to peer into the minds of Canadians to see what goes on up there, you know, what their views are, what their personal opinion is. That's not right. Every country in history that have gone down dark paths where governments take on too much control and really intervene and, and take away those freedoms often start with an attack on the freedom to disagree, the freedom to hold different points of view. That's why Conservatives voted this way. We voted to uphold the charter rights of, of Canadians who have no obligation to tell the government what their personal views are on issues. The government can set the criteria as to what, uh, what types of activities will be eligible for funding, but they don't have a right to peer inside the minds of Canadians. Uh, you know, the state may, uh, I think we can all agree in, in 2018 that the state has no place in the, the bedrooms of the nations. Well, I believe the state has no place in the conscience of the nations either. At the next election, Liberals are going to say, uh, we stood up for reproductive choice, the Conservatives stood against it, and that was only the beginning. Wait till you see the next thing they do. I, th I think they'd like Canadians to believe that. That's obviously the tactic going on. When you look at the ridiculousness answers in the House of Commons, uh, that's exactly what they try to do. They try to, to, to spin this into an area where it is. It, it has never been about. This is about protecting the freedom of, of Canadians to offer services on a wide range of issues helping refugees, camps for kids, feeding the, the, feeding the poor and the homeless. They shouldn't have to be forced to, to sign this type of thing. And as I say, it goes directly against the Charter. You know, when I'm Prime Minister, I'm going to bring that Charter into the foyer of the House of Commons and say, look, this is what it says, this is what it means, we have these freedoms. And we, we cannot let the government 
take that away or erode that. My message to Canadians going into 2019 will be, this is what the government tried to do in, in this term. Imagine what they'll do going forward. What rights will they erode going forward if we give Justin Trudeau the power to legislate on what our personal beliefs may be? Okay. Um, I have several questions in my pocket given to me by my excellent colleague as I walked in. Uh, that come from readers uh, on the internet and uh, and the Twitter and all of that uh, fancy stuff. Um, the Twitter is the Twitter. As, 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 <laughs> I'm I'm told it's popular. Um, the number one question that came from an awful lot of people when we invited them to say, "What would you ask Andrew Shear?" was, "Why is he working with people who were associated with Rebel Media and Ezra Levant?" Your campaign director, Hamish Marshall, was a director of the corporation uh, until he became your campaign director. Uh, Stephen Taylor, uh, is working on social media with you, was also associated with Rebel Media. Uh, to what point are you taking on the baggage of Rebel Media when you work with folks like that? I, I think a lot of people like to try to conflate the, the two. I can tell you it's totally not the case. Uh, There's it, a fine line between uh, a group or an entity saying something controversial and then uh, crossing that line to what happened in Charlottesville, giving a platform to very nefarious and, 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 and offensive and, and hateful language. So that's when I made the decision to disassociate, you know, to, to not go on uh, Rebel in the future. You know, other people have had done work in the past, have moved on as well. Um, people have worked for other organizations that have said distasteful things. You know, don't necessarily describe or subscribe to those types of things. You know, there are other people who have left who uh, have work now work in other media as well. So I, I I know that there's a lot of people in the in the Liberal Party and others that would like to make that link, but I think it's pretty clear that, that there is no uh, it's, it's not the case at all. And uh, so that's I can put that to rest right now. Um, a lot of your own supporters, uh, people who work hard for the party, who donate every time they're asked, think that what Ezra Levant says and does is great. Uh, do you need that, that rebel-friendly market to uh, uh, succeed as a leader of a conservative party in Canada? You know, I, 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 I need to get my message out, and I'm doing that on, on, in my own way. I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm, I'm traveling across the country. Uh, I'll leave it to other people to decide you know, what, they, what they want to uh, uh, read or look at, and, and and I've just made the decision for myself that based on what I saw happen this uh, past summer, that I wouldn't be engaging with that organization. And so, uh, going forward, I'm going to continue to do what I have been doing, which is taking my positive vision about how a conservative government can increase the quality of life for all Canadians uh, and take that to as many people as I can. Okay. There's another thing I wanted to ask you about, and that we did get some questions about uh, online which is a promise that you made that universities that do not pay sufficient attention to free speech on campus will have their federal funding withdrawn or reduced. And I, uh, it is now not only a question that I have to put to the conservative leader, because in the budget, the liberals made a similar promise, which is that university campuses that don't work hard enough to uh, fight against sexual assault will also have their federal funding uh, withdrawn or reduced. And the question I have is, what federal funding? What, what, to what extent does Ottawa reach into a university campus in such a way that you can withdraw that funding if you don't like what's going on on that campus? Mm. Well, to back up a little bit, the Liberals already established the precedent on this when they uh, said that funding would be prioritized to universities who achieved certain targets on achieving uh, diversity. So I think gender diversity was the, the goal that they were using 
So there are research grants that go to universities, and uh, the government has a the federal government gets to decide where to prioritize that spending. And there's a already a criteria set as to you know who's prioritized. And what I've committed to saying is that as part of that evaluation, as part of that criteria, uh, I want to see universities have a regime around protecting free speech. Uh, I think it's critically important at this point in time where uh, the answer uh, to people who disagree with what they're hearing from is not to engage in the debate and sharpen their answers and to propose uh, an alternative or to uh, show why they're right and the other people are wrong. The, uh, many, many groups are just shutting the debate down. And that's not fair. That's not right. It goes against our fundamental freedoms. It's a dangerous trend. And we cannot allow uh, a, vo a small group of very loud and vocal people, people willing to break the law, people willing to get arrested, people who wear masks and in some cases violently assault people who are coming in to, to give a talk or to uh, you know, expound on, on what they believe uh, should happen. We can't allow them to stifle that free speech. Uh, there are models in other places. Uh, some universities have adopted these types of regimes already, and that's what I would do. I would I would set that into the criteria. Um, I've already had conversations with representatives from universities. I think the majority of university officials are dismayed at what's going on. It's not a success when an event gets canceled. It's not a good thing when, when a, a tenured professor comes and, and is not able to give a talk or when uh, campus clubs are, are, are not able to, uh, to, to, to hold events. That Nobody believes that that's a good thing. So I'm confident that we can come up with a, a regime that makes sense, a, a, a framework that will have a real impact on protecting free speech while at the same time recognizing that universities do have legitimate challenges with, uh, with, with who they allow on their campus and also uh, with providing a safe and secure access uh, space for students. What are the cases that come to mind when you talk about this dangerous trend? Well, I, uh, the, the, the TA at, uh, at uh, Laurier University, uh, was, you know, she was basically th um, virtually threatened with losing her job for showing two sides of debate, for showing a, a clip from a public broadcaster on a, on a current topic. Uh, you know, to be hauled before a, uh, an ad hoc tribunal and, and threatened and harassed with her job, I, I don't think that's a, a very good trend. And I, I think that uh, when I was in university, I loved the debate. I, I, I love being challenged. I love challenging my professors. And, I, and I, I had professors lose their cool on me. And sometimes, you know, and I, was, I went to poli-sci at, uh, at Ottawa U. We had some great knock them down, drag them out debates, not physically, not literally knock them down, drag them out. And I think that's the key. And, and we all would leave, head to the Royal Oak for a picture afterwards, and uh, respect the fact that we, and, and celebrate the fact that we could do that. This country is one of the countries in the world where you can do that. You can say those things. You can, you can profess what you believe in and respect people who disagree with you. I think there's a real appetite for young people to return to that type of thing because young people don't like to be told what to think or what to say. They don't. I know when I was going through university, there's that sense of uh, you know, nobody can tell me what to do or think. I'm going to chart my own way for the, uh, through the world. And I think a, a, a policy around free speech protecting that, I, I tell you, some of the groups that like this the most, I've received the most amount of positive feedback, have been young people. One of the questions that we got online was, how are you going to work with Donald Trump? <laughs> well, um, I believe that's going to be uh, uh, an interesting challenge for, for, for anyone who's Prime Minister after 2019. It's, it, it's difficult, you know, um, especially on trade. If I could speak to trade on a little bit on this, I think for the, uh, the, the U.S. administration is, is not looking at trade through a, a philosophically consistent lens. You know, you have free traders who say, okay, anywhere we can tear down barriers and increase market access, uh, let's do that. And, and there's that consistency of thought. 
and where other countries aren't willing to go all the way as quickly, you make concessions, but you know basically where they're trying to go. Uh, from my trip to Washington, having conversations with congressmen and officials, it seems like Donald Trump views our trading relationship as a sector-by-sector -sector trade or surplus situation. So if the U.S. has a surplus, they're winning, and if they have a deficit, they're losing. And it's not across the trading relationship as a whole. It's literally steel, agriculture, manufacturing, auto. Uh, that's, not, uh, uh, that's not a good way to approach a trade file. It's actually uh, very counterproductive if that's the lens you're working with because sometimes you have deficits, you have trade deficits for a reason, and, and, and other countries specialize in producing something or making something that's actually better for your country to be able to import that uh, cheaply. I, I made the point to a congressman while I was down there that uh, Canada has a very large trade deficit on citrus fruit. And it doesn't bother us <laughs> because uh, we don't want to uh, subsidize a greenhouse uh, industry here to grow our own lemons and, and limes. It's much better to import them and give our consumers that thing. So it's going to be a challenge for whoever's prime minister. But I believe the key is to find those allies where we can in the U.S. administration, uh, U.S. Congress, and outside of Washington. Find that c company in Philadelphia that has two or three hundred workers thanks to trade with Canada, thanks to a vertically integrated supply chain, thanks to the ability to pick up the phone and order a thousand new parts without having to worry about you know, crossing the border, things like that. Get them to put more and more pressure. It's starting to happen. I think it's a good sign. You see some of the pushback that came out right away on steel and others. So uh, I would certainly uh, commit to working even harder to develop that alliance throughout the United States to keep those borders open. To win the next election, you need the vote of basically every Canadian who thinks that Donald Trump is a great president, and of millions who don't. How do you juggle that? <laughs> you know, I think it's pretty... <laughs> one of the things I think is, is uh, a challenge right now is that that is the lens that many things are being looked at through. And I, I, I reject that. You know, sometimes there's a propensity in Canada to, to be overly focused on that and to, to import some of the dynamic from the United States that's not the case. We don't have the same style. We don't have the same uh, ability even in our own parliament for anybody to act uh, as the, the President of the United States has been acting. So I, I kind of reject that comparison altogether. I'm going to be speaking to Canadians in a way that I believe is effective. I think that Conservatives in general are more successful when we have a positive message, when we have a, 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 an inclusive message, when we're trying to bring more people into the, uh, the tent than kind of a polarizing type of message. I, I, you know, Ronald Reagan one uh, every state in the union except for Minnesota I think and um, uh, Washington DC and Minnesota, Minnesota yes. okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know Bradwell in Saskatchewan uh, conservatives win when we have a positive message an aspirational message about how our country's going to get better under our policies how every Canadian's going to do better and I'm going to do that in isolation of what's happening in other parts of the world that you know I'm not going to be compared to other politicians in, in, in other countries. I'm going to offer myself and, and my team and our policies to Canadians. This is not my favorite question, but if I don't ask it, the next reporter will. Are you rejecting, are you telling us that the Conservative Party will not run negative ads in the next election? <laughs> we will run ads that uh, show the contrast between uh, what we are proposing and the effects of the Liberal government. But I do believe that it's essential to keep those on issues. Uh, to keep those on the, the practical effects of the policies that are being proposed. And so that's where our, our communications with Canadians will focus on. Uh, on that point, do you ever pose for selfies? 
<laughs> I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Uh, there, there are people who prefer a selfie, you know. Uh, there are some people that we, sometimes I, when I'm doing official events, I do have a photographer and they often offer and say, oh, I'll take the picture for you. And say, no, no, no I, I want a selfie. So I'm, I'm happy uh, you know, in those situations to, to oblige. It's a little bit tough though sometimes with the height differential because uh, <laughs> often they, they ask for the height. selfie, it's like, oh, okay, that's not gonna work. Uh, here. <laughs> Uh, one of the questions we have is, tell us about your vision for science. Well, uh, I think it's incredibly important that uh, we have both level, well, all three levels of gov government make sure that we are cultivating a, uh, a, an economy and a society that, that uh, invests and rewards and incentivizes scientific research in, in many different fields. I do think it's important for people to remember that government's not a very good predictor of where innovation's going to come from. You know, there is no white paper that determined that the Kitchener-Waterloo area should be a high-tech hub and, and uh, you know, that smartphones would be the next big thing, so we're going to invest in that. That happens organically. I think that the, the difference in approach that I would take from the Liberal government is, uh, I think sometimes, uh, often, big government liberals think that they can predict where the economy is going to go or where society is going to go. And they think that managing the economy is like pulling levers and twisting dials and adding a little bit of innovation there and maybe, uh, you know, some, uh, some flexibility over here. And uh, no, we need to put a climate in place that makes it easier for investments in those types of fields that rewards those who do take those risks and, and makes it easier for universities to work with private companies to commercialize things. That's where our focus would go. But, you know, uh, you look at some of the innovation that's happened in, in, in to take a practical example from our own, our own lives. In the 1970s, uh, it, it took the average worker about two weeks salary to earn enough money to buy a top of the line television set. Today, it takes the average worker two days to buy a product that is infinitely better than what I was growing up with when I was the remote. Um, that didn't happen because there was a minister of TV fairness. Uh, there is no d department of innovation when it comes to telecommunications. It happens because private, the free market, free people making free decisions, saw uh, a way to improve a product, better get a better return, and provide something better to Canadians. And consumers win when that is allowed to happen. So my focus would be ensuring that we have the type of climate where scientific research is easier to do here, that we're attracting the best and the brightest. If I can go off on a bit of a rant here, the, the effect of the liberal taxation policy, increasing taxes on individuals and private companies, has a real effect on making Canada a less attractive place to move to. And we have people graduating from universities around the world, some great institutions in Europe, in India, South America, who will look at Canada and say, okay, well, if I move there and invest here, uh, my own personal taxation rate is such that it's, it's going to be very difficult. And there's not as much company activity going on. There's more of a cluster here. There's more companies here where I can, you know, uh, have better opportunities with, that has a big impact on it too. And so the government trying to do all of this itself actually has a, a negative consequence on our ability to attract the best and brightest from around the world. One final question from the Ethernets. Uh, how should social media companies be regulated when it comes to Canada's democratic health? We've heard extraordinary allegations about uh, the ways that uh, the Trump campaign and others may have tried to subvert uh, data that's available on Facebook, uh, a giant of the free market, uh, but now just a, just an extraordinary presence in, in North American society. Is there a role for government in making sure that that sort of thing can't happen again? I think it's incredibly important that we start with a review of what actually happened and, and get to uh, the facts. 
You'll understand that I am wary of giving to a government that would impose a values test on Canada Summer Jobs Funding the power to regulate the internet. And uh, every time governments have tried to say, you know, we're going to regulate this aspect of the, uh, the, the internet, people I think are rightly uh, concerned. So I think you identify a problem. I, th I think we can all agree that there should be some kind of uh, transparency or accountability for uh, companies that, that do have that impact in our lives. It is, uh, I mean, Jeez, I check my Facebook account regularly. Uh, every politician is using it. Uh, a lot of people, that's how they consume their news. It's more and more that's becoming the, the, the platform. So I think uh, if we're going to have a conversation around that, I think we have to start with finding out exactly what, what's happened. But I think granting to the government the power to, to, to determine what is or isn't fact, or, or I mean, we have to be very, very cautious about that road going down. So I think if the conversation is around accountability and knowing who is putting information out when we're looking at foreign influences in, uh, that, that's a great place to start the conversation to make sure that that's, that that's not happening, having uh, uh, undue influence or uh, that aspect of it. So th those are areas where we're willing to, to engage in. We haven't heard a lot of details from the government. You know, they've, they've made some statements, but they haven't backed it. Like so many files, they've, they've made statements, they've made proclamations, but they haven't actually come to us with any kind of concrete proposals about where they might go. Okay. On that note, I'm going to thank you for taking so much time with us tonight here in the Rossi Pavilion of the National Arts Centre in Great front background. of where you work, Parliament <laughs> Hill. Uh, it's a little less intimate than those lunches that we used to have in the Speaker's Chambers, but I'm... Was, uh, less wine. Uh, less wine. Uh, I'm, uh, it's probably a good thing. Uh, but I did appreciate this uh, chance to catch up. Thanks very much. Thanks for very much, Paul.